<clears throat> Joshua chapter 1. Read along with me, would, would you please? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this is not a nun, by the way, like a gal with a habit. This is, that's her name, or his name, actually. Moses' assistant saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land that I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness of this great Lebanon, or this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the, going, of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land in which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage, in case the first few times you didn't hear it. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourself. For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land in which the Lord your God has given you to possess. As to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest. And has given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest, as he gave you. And they also have get, taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, saying, all that you command us, we will do. And whatever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Now, if you know anything about the history of the way that people didn't obey Moses, I actually wouldn't find this any comfort. Only the Lord be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. You pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for this beautiful wonderful book. And I pray as we begin to embark upon it, Lord, that you would do something amazing. You would, Lord, revolutionize us. Lord, you know that there is an ocean of information swimming in my head, and from it, things need to be chosen. Lord, it's like a prep cook, but you've got a recipe unique for tonight to speak to every one of us individually as well as corporately today. And I do pray, Lord, that every one of us will be personally, powerfully, intimately spoken to. Bespoke to our needs, unique to the way we hear and understand. Speak to each of us in a way we get it. Captivate us in your word. Let the story that you are about to unfold, Lord, draw us in. And may we get it. May we really get it. And may we see what you have for us today in this. So, Lord, we commit this. Lord, Take the people we were, slay them. Let that just be behind us and take the people that you want to make us. Just take the clay of our being and shape us now into something beautiful, something that only you can make. So, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak. Be, Lord, as you would be perfect in length and in depth. And Lord, may it be clearly today we would have so much fun on this hot sticky day, no matter where we're from, this hot, sticky day. Lord, may we be glad to be in this relatively cool room in comparison. And may we really enjoy you tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I would say tonight as I would any, as many, most of you are aware of, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Now, 
For the sake of starting a book, a book, I have a book, I have a book, I have a book, I have to give us some reference, and that means that we have to kind of go back. Now, we've gone through five books of the Bible. The first five books are called the Torah uh, by the Jewish people. Torah, by the way, means teaching. And so let me kind of go through the sort of historical background a little bit, and we can flash that map up if we could. Uh, it starts, by the way, with the fact that God created everything. And by the way, I've kind of learned if you can get past the first verse of Scripture, the rest of it should be easy. I mean, if God really did make everything, he can muck about with it any way he wants to. So people start asking, how could God make the sun stand still? Or how could God stop this or part this? It seems nonsense if God made it all. He knows what he's doing. Well, just the same. He goes from, from making everything, the universe as we somewhat know it, to, by the way, focusing on humankind. And from focusing on humankind, he actually then focuses on a single family by the time we get to chapter 12 of the first book, Genesis. Genesis, by the way, means beginnings. It's a perfect name for it. And by chapter 12, we get this man, Abraham, called, by the way, out of a land basically right over here. Out here where this green light would be would be the sort of where the Gulf War crisis is, um, sort of Yemen, that type of area, the area of Ur. The guy was an idol worshiper. He came from an idol worshiping family. But God called him out of that and he called and led him and he led him up from there, up through the area like this would be Syria even today. He led him up through Syria and brought him down into here. And while he brought him down into there, he said, by the way, this land right here, I'm going to give you. Now, there are people who live in it, but they have not only denied me, there will be a day, and it's not yet, but there will be a day when their hearts will be so hard that they will never do anything to receive me. Because when that day comes, you're getting the land. So that's a promise that Abraham has given. And the promise was for land, and the promise was for at least this land, and what God will actually show, and we'll see in a moment, is much more land beyond that. Just the same, Abraham never even gets to see it. Well, he never really gets to assume it, let's say it that way. And a famine brings him down, by the way, all into this area here, which is the land of Egypt. It's interesting because it's the first of a couple famines, and it's through that situation, by the way, we kind of get foretaste of what's to happen. Abraham will have a son. His name is Laughter. Itzkach, Isaac. He will have two sons. One's name is Yaakov, or heel catcher. We might say James or Jacob today. And that particular guy has 12 boys. Those 12 boys become the 12 boys of Jacob, but Jacob gets a name change from rip-off or heel-catcher to Israel. And Israel means struggled with God. Now, interesting, they will be called then the 12 sons of Israel, which would make sense. If I had 12 sons, they might be called the 12 sons of Tony. The only difference is there's not a land named Tony. Now, we know a land called Israel, and it's named after that guy because of the promise that was given, if you will, to his grandpa, Abraham. So with that in mind, these 12 boys, by the way, the 11th of them, that's the, basically the second youngest, winds up getting ditched by his brothers. They have a real problem with him. He is sort of, in their opinion, delusions of grandeur, and they send him down, interestingly enough, down to Egypt, where the boy, by the way, goes through a lot of hard times, but ultimately is elevated to second in command. And just like in this case with great-grandpa, Abraham, another famine hits. When that famine hits, they all have to go down here for grain because God supernaturally used this boy, his name is Joseph, to really help save, by the way, the Gentile world first and then be restored to his Jewish brothers. The reason, by, we, by the way, that we use the term Jewish is because of all of those 12 sons, the fourth one's name is Judah, and that gets shortened to Jew. That's where we get Jew from, by the way. So, you know. Now, with that in mind, here's the point. Is that there's a famine, they go down, basically they're restored, and they went up moving down to Egypt, basically because it's the only place that has food. The book of Genesis ends with, the, basically, the death of this boy, jo- Joseph, and with the birth, in essence, or in the maturation of this promise, that not only are they going to get this land, by the way, that God promised to bring him. But four generations after this, they're going to wind up coming out. In between that time, it's going to be rough again. Now, the people multiply. They become quite prolific. And as they become so, Egypt gets a little bit troubled. Now, they're intimidated by the fact that there are an awful lot of these Hebrew boys. And as a result of that, they impress them, put them into slavery. And many of you have seen, for instance, the Prince of Egypt or maybe the Ten Commandments, the old one with Charlie Heston or whatever. But some of you have seen those kind of stories. Well, that comes from this. So those next four books, that Genesis, that's our beginning book. Well, then the other four books are basically what happens to get them out of Egypt. 
That's Exodus, by the way, which means exit. Makes sense that that would be the next book, wouldn't it? Because we got into Egypt in the first book. Now we need to exit Egypt in the second. So that's the idea. But when they get out, ultimately, God had planned an 11-day journey. An 11-day journey ultimately was going to take them from the land of Egypt down here to this place over here, by the way, called Mount Sinai, where they'll get the law. We know it is the Ten Commandments. And God will ultimately take them up to this place up here where they can go then and ultimately enter the land through this little water here that's called the Jordan River. The reason it's called the Jordan River ultimately is because Dan, one of those tribes, will actually go up here and, and, and this will be his property. As a result of that, it will flow from Dan and that's why they call it that. Matter of fact, Jordan or Jordan literally means from Dan or Dan means judgment. Like Dan means judge. So the idea of Dan, Jordan means from judgment. So interesting. So you have this thing called from judgment and they get to cross that to go in here. But the people aren't interested. They actually uh, don't, by, by faith, they, they're by the lack of faith, they're like, we don't want to go in. We've surmised the people on the other side and they are way too big for us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're going to get crushed. Now, 12 spies were sent in. Two of them came back with a good report. And those two guys' names were Joshua and Caleb. Joshua. Sound familiar? That's the book you're reading. Now, the idea is simple. The other 10 on the other end have a very bad report. As they have a bad report, the rest of them follow the bad report. And they're like, heck no, we won't go. And God says, you're right, you won't go then. You're going to wander around and die until the next generation steps in. And that's ultimately what happens. So the third book, first book, Genesis, that's the creation of everything. They go into Egypt. Second book, Exodus, exit. Why is it exiting? Because they are exiting Egypt. Does that make sense so far? Third book is Leviticus. And God says, now that I have you out, I want to show you the Levites. By the way, it's the third son. Show you how we do things from a godly perspective. The fourth book is Numbers. And the reason it's called that is because they numbered the people twice. They took a census. That would make sense, right? It's a book of numbers. They numbered the people. They wandered around and showed you what happened once they counted them at the end. Now, I remind you, it isn't like everyone just died off. Lots of people had babies in the wilderness. As a result of that, it wasn't like they had, you know, 15,000 over here and now they have three. Because those 15,000 still had kids. It's the older generation that would die off. Which takes us to that last fifth book. And that is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this whole time since they were being led out of Egypt, they were led by a guy named Drawn Out. Or we would know it as Moshe or Moses. Moses is the guy, by the way, who takes them through that. He takes them through, by the way, the Red Sea. Of course, takes them and through the wilderness. The last book, Deuteronomy, is a Greek word. Deutas, by the way, most of these are. Deutas means, by the way, to. Namas means law. The reason it's called the second law is because God reiterates that law he gave them up on that mountain. But God actually summarizes it with this one statement. Please hear me. I'm loosely paraphrasing Deuteronomy 6. Please hear me. If there's one thing I want from you, this is God speaking. I want your love. That's what I want. It isn't like I just want your blind obedience. It isn't like I want you to be a robot. What I want is your love. See, all the other stuff kind of falls into place if that's the case. So this second law is this last book, Deuteronomy. And it ends with Moses dying. So the first five books, God created everything, got him into Egypt, got him out of Egypt, and the guy who led him dies. How's that for a quick sort of super phrase? Which takes us now to this book, Joshua. Now we begin a new section. We're no longer in the Torah, those first five books. And forgive me, this sounds academic. We'll jump into this text in just a moment. But please hear me on this. I just want you to recognize, I mean, if, if you're going to be students of the word, you might as well be students, right? So follow me on this. So understand, now we begin these historical passages. We now start something that's primarily exclusively historical. There's a great lessons to be learned throughout the whole thing because it really is people's examples. And I don't know about you, but I learn a lot by other people's mistakes uh, because I know that if I don't, I will repeat them. And normally when something really bad happens to them because of their stupidity, I have no interest in receiving their punishment. So Joshua, by the way, he's roughly 100 years old now. By the end of this book, Joshua will die at 110. So how does the book of Joshua end? Joshua dies. Because it's kind of hard to have Joshua part two when he died. Let's just be honest. Unless it's like Jesus where he resurrected. Now, follow me on that. During this time, basically, the book's rather simple, if you will. The book is basically two basic parts. I mean, the first part of it, well, verses, chapters 1 through 12, is taking the land. God has promised this land and they need to go in and get it. Now, there are going to be battles to be fought. But God had promised perfect victory, and we'll see that here in this chapter. 
The first 12 chapters, look at, I want you to grow. I want you to move forward and I have a place just for you. Just for you. Bespoke with your name on it. Angel's place is not mine. Maureen's place is not mine. Norma's place is not mine. And that's Daniel can't fill Norma's spot. Because that spot God ordained. Now, I'm not saying that's the place where she's sitting in the pew. The point is, is that God has a ministry unique for each of you, a place of prosperity. And I don't mean that in the sense of you get rich financially. I mean in the sense of a greater prosperity. The prosperity of God's presence. For all the things that people want in wealth that they don't get, the peace and the joy and the love and the respect and the purpose and all of that stuff is what God gives you without having to give you money that could be stolen to get it. That's the point here. So hear me on this. First 12 chapters, there are battles that are going to be fought. And it is a book of battles. There'll be over 30 enemy armies to fight, by the way. And by the way, there's a few things we can learn right off the offset. Hear me on this. First of all, we must be on the offense. God never told us we were supposed to be just a people with a good defense. If you've ever played any sport, just having a good defense doesn't win games. At best, it may keep you from losing. You might tie. But a good offense wins. He says, if you really want to grow, if you really want to move forward, then you've got to move forward. Then you've got to actually go to the battle. And some of us, that's why we don't want to. Because we can't, we, we, we don't want battles. Here's the problem. The battle is going to be fought one way or the other. Why wait for it to come to you where you have to be on the defense when you can actually run to the battle? And I'm not saying shoot yourself, blow yourself up. That is not the battle God's talking about here. It's the battle over human souls for people to come to know our God for what He intended for, to love Him and to receive His love. And if you're the kind that says, look, I'm just going to wait for the battle to come to me, then the only thing you'll have is a defense. And the church today, let's be honest, is hungry for defense at best and has no interest in an offense or at least doesn't know how to. The second thing is it will be necessary that there will be a specific program, and we'll see that, by the way, when we get to chapters 2 and 3, that we don't just run in and just start blindly start swinging the Word of God or whatever. There are some points that we need to prepare ourselves. And one of those things, by the way, is that it is imperative that we have a wide open heart when we go to battle. Strange. Because as a soldier, as a person who fought competitively younger in life, the last thing you want is a tender heart. But God says, in this battle, because it's over human souls, you've got to have a soft heart. It isn't about winning an argument. It's about winning a soul. And that's radically different. Now, there will be a strategy. He will cut through the middle, as we see kind of even with this. He will cut through the middle. They'll come, come through this area here. And as they come through this area here, ultimately will happen. And I don't know if you can see these little spots right here. Can you see these spots right here? That's, by the way, just so you know, that's Jericho and Gilgal. We are, we're at this point camped on the other side of this Jordan. We're kind of right here at the moment. And they're on the other side here. They're on the west side of the Jordan. Now, they'll cut through that center area. And then they'll fight the battles in the south. And then they'll fight the battles in the north. But hear me on this. God will focus on three very specific battles in the beginning here. And we'll see them. Not today, but we will see them. And those three battles, I guarantee you, will be the battles every one of us will face as we walk with God. He breaks them down into three very simple battles. And with each one of them, we can see how to win them. So that will be actually before us. So those first 12 chapters... They're the chapters of taking the land. And even as God says in chapter 1, verse 3, and look at it with me, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given you. What a wonderful promise that is. The last chapters, chapters 13 through 24, the second half of the book, is assuming the land. We take the land in the first half, and then we assume the land. Interesting, now that the land has been won, or a good portion of it, will you actually then choose? Understand, listen, listen, listen. It isn't about just fighting to win a battle and then going to visit. This is about a place you're going to live now. It's not just a place you're going to go, all right, well, I've kind of gotten a little forward, whatever, and I can start it. This is where we live now. And it is going to be a place that's radical when it comes to that. There are going to be some really big changes. In this new land, by the way, there'll be no more Moses. There'll be no more wilderness. There'll be no more manna. No more water from rocks. 
No more pillar of fire by night or cloud by day. All of those things that we knew of that were so clearly, and understand for 40 years, how many of you haven't been alive for 40 years? Raise your hand right now. No, I'm not trying to get your confession on those of you who aren't. Come on, if you're younger than 40, raise your hand. Right? Okay. Now, the reason I say that is, that means you would have been born in the wilderness. The wilderness would have been the only thing you knew. Consider that. So this whole, so when you think, how weird to get manna, the stuff that flakes up in the morning like dew. How weird is it to get water from a rock? But that's all you knew. It isn't weird for you. It's actually normal for you. Weird would be getting water from a tap. Weird would be getting water from a stream. Weird would be actually getting fruits and getting things that actually grew off the land because we lived in the sand for for 40 years. So understand for you, all y'all under 40, and by the way, just just out of grace, I think every one of you, raise your hand, I'm just kidding. Um, I just want you to know that when God starts saying, look, I'm going to move you to a new land, this is as weird as it gets for you because these are basic points. You'll no longer have to live in a tent. You'll no longer have to move around. I mean, all of this stuff you've known your whole life. Now, actually, he's going to be left behind. That's an awful lot to leave. That alone is a battle, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you? I mean, is there a point where you actually go, I kind of miss the sand. I kind of miss the extreme heat. I kind of miss the manna that I've complained about for 38 years. Well, hear me on this. Last thing, and we'll actually dive a bit into the text. So who is this guy, Joshua? It's important to note Joshua is a Hebrew name, Yehoshua. He was born with the name Hoshea. Hoshea, by the way, means salvation. Yah, like Yahweh, means God. He gets a name change from, from salvation to God is salvation, Yehoshua or Joshua. Interesting, because if you were going to translate that name into Greek, that would be Jesus. And of course, You may not know this, but maybe you do. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, more than likely wasn't called Jesus by his mother. More than likely, he was called Joshua, because that is the Hebrew name for Jesus. So, if you will, think about the fact that he's basically the same name. Now, it's also one of the 11 most common names among the Hebrew people, so that's why they didn't just say Jesus. They had to say Jesus of Nazareth. Unless you actually live in Mexico, chances are Jesus is not a very popular name around your neighborhood. Unless you're hanging out with like Kanye West or someone and he thinks, but anyways, you get it. Point here is that in Jesus' day, Joshua was, I mean, it would be like John or Mark or one of those names today. I mean, it's like we think we found the Messiah. What's his name? Bob. You're like, Bob. I was born and raised in Chicago, Southside. And I can't tell you how many people have been like, it's strange. I don't know why this name's more than any. They're like, oh my goodness, you're from Chicago. Do you know Willie Johnson? I'm like, I know 11 Willie Johnsons, actually. And it's sort of like, okay, oh, Willie. I think we found the Messiah. His name's Willie. Which one? Willie Johnson. Which one? Well, the one from 71st and Kedzie. Well, here's the point. Is that this name, Joshua, means, again, the Lord is salvation. And I think God's setting us up here. Now, this is what we know about the guy up to this point. And if you're quick to Scripture, remember the second book of the Bible. Remember the first was Beginnings, that's Genesis. The second is the book of Exodus. Flip to Exodus chapter 17 for a moment. Look at verse... Oh, go ahead and get there. Hey, look at Even if you're new to Scripture, isn't this awesome? You're keeping up with the best of them. Way to go. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Can you find that? It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Amalek is a group of people who've always been enemies of Israel. And they show up here. Verse 9 says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow, and stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands became heavy, as yours might be as well. So they took a stone. That's Remember, he's got two guys with him, Aaron and her. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. This is the introduction to Joshua. Up to this point, we have never met him. In Scripture, you've now seen Joshua's introduction into the play of life. And consider this. There's a group of people that have attacked out of nowhere. They're called Amalek. As they've attacked out of nowhere, that what we'll find later in the text is that they will actually attack the weaker, the stragglers, tired. You know, get the ones on the outside. Kind of like lions would when they chase after a wildebeest. They don't go for the strongest one in the middle. They go for the one that straggles off. And as they do, Moses turns to Joshua as if he knows him. We don't yet. And he says, go and find out who does the battle, who leads the battle down in the valley. Moses, does he lead the battle down there? You tell me. No, who leads the battle down there? Joshua. Moses is up on the top of the hill with his hands raised. Might I say the first thing we learn about Joshua is that he is a soldier. Interesting thing, especially when we get to this chapter. Then when the guy's introduced, how would you like to be introduced in Scripture as the guy that basically gets called to kick butt? It's kind of how the guy shows up. Okay, now turn to Exodus 34. I'm sorry, Exodus 24. If you've gotten to this point, you should get to 24 pretty easy, right? I'm just doing, I'm trying to do this quickly but clearly. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 12, can you find it? Wow, look at you guys. I love that, by the way. I love watching you flip in Scripture. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be here, be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law of commandments, which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. The second thing, by the way, is not only was he a soldier, he was also a servant. The second thing I notice about him is he's a servant. Kind of like that. He's the one guy that gets to go up with Moses when God writes with his finger. Third one. Ready? Exodus 33. This is my favorite, by the way. Look at verse 10 with me. And actually, I better go. I'm trying to get where it would be a good place to start. Let's say verse 9. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Could you imagine? God came down like a cloud, and you spoke with a cloud, and it was God. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man at his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Okay, so get the picture on this one. What happens is that, wouldn't you love to have that said about you? Like have God actually come down and sit down and talk with you like a guy talks with his friend? Imagine if Jesus wore a shirt and it said, Mark is my homeboy. Imagine that. And he's, he comes down as a cloud, and he begins to speak with Moses. And what Moses does, because he's in ministry, and this could be a really dangerous thing, I call this the Moses trap, is he goes in, he talks with God about some decisions that need to be made, some things, and then he leaves and goes and hands them to the people. So meeting with God becomes, in essence, kind of part of the business, if you will. Joshua, on the other hand, what do we read about that guy? He doesn't want to leave. And I'm like, God, make me Joshua, not Moses. I mean, I, I get the, and this is just me, forgive me, this is sort of the romantic part of me. I see Joshua walking in, and it doesn't even say that he's talking to God. It doesn't say that God's like speaking with Moses. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Thing, I already know, but I thought I'd start a conversation. And, all that. and then he's like, oh, and Joshua, I was hoping we could talk. None of that. It's like he's talking here, and, and Joshua's watching these, this. He's watching God talk with man, and man talk with God. And he's just like, oh. And then Moses leaves, and Joshua's still going, oh. Frozen in God's presence. Surrounded in God's beauty. I think, oh God, make me that. So not only was he a soldier, 
Not only was he a servant, he was one who stayed. He stayed. And can I say, if I want to be more like Joshua than Moses and take people in, I've got to stay. I stay. And it actually says, it's one of the verses someone was kind enough to put around my ankle, that says in, in Psalm 92.13, He who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. It doesn't just say he who comes and visits will actually get some really cool stuff. It says, man, if you're there and you're planted, you're going to blossom. It's like, and you know what? Some people, it's like they only come to God when things are rough. Marriage is on the, bra- on the brinks. Job is like at its at wit's ends. They don't know what to do next. Things are a little bit crazy. And they're like, well, now I think I should go visit God. But you realize you would never actually have to deal with the craziness if you actually lived there. Now, I'm not saying like, you know, we had to grab a cot and just, you know, Set yourself up in a pew. What I'm saying is that, man, when we, the great thing is, is that God set up his tabernacle in us now so that we can, and I'm not saying don't be in fellowship. We need to be. God tells us that in Hebrews. But to be in that place where we're in constantly in fellowship with him and in fellowship with other people who love him because, man, we need that in this world we live in. The dangerous thing is it's like, I'm going to go and do my quiet time in the morning so I have what I take, what I need, like Moses, and I'm going to go out and kind of try to be a nicer person, and then I'm going to kind of come back at the end of the day and try it again. Versus God, I don't want to stop this communication. I want to pray without ceasing. I want to actually be in a place where I trust in you with all my heart, lean not upon my own understanding, but in all of my ways acknowledge you. Because wherever I'm going to go, you know, it's like, you know, I go on dates, and maybe it's weird for you, so forgive me. I don't care. But I go on dates with God. There are times where I'm just like, no one else is around, and I'm like, you know what, it's just going to be you and me. Man, when we went to Italy on this, this beautiful wedding, man, God did so many beautiful things. Well, when we did that, one of those things that I had the privilege of doing was just getting in the water. And I forgot how much I loved swimming in the sea. I used to do it every day. I lived in California. It got so bad that Allie, one of the girls in our fellowship who was driving me to the airport, had to call me out of the sea to get me to the airport. And, and, and when I'd get there, I'd just swim to where nobody else was. And I would just literally just, God, how are we doing? Are we all right? Just check in. I want to make sure that there, if there's, there's something I'm missing, I want to make sure that I'm not so busy that I can't hear you or trying to get ahead of you and trying to get you to say, all right, bless my direction because I'm going there, follow me. I'm supposed to be following you. How am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a father? How am I doing as a pastor? You know what's interesting? When you have a relationship with anybody that loves you, they will give you correction at times, but it's not their only conversation. Are you afraid to talk with God because you're afraid that if you talk with him, all he's going to tell you is what you're doing wrong? What kind of relationship is that? And there's sometimes where he's just like, Annie, I just want to tell you, this is a really good thing. Keep on this. Or Naomi, yeah, this, maybe that, this, this, this. I'm so pleased by this. And we're afraid to talk to God sometimes because we're afraid all he's going to say is, you know, where have you been? Right? Like he's the truancy officer. But not Joshua. I kind of love this about him. So, soldier, servant, stays. Four more, and we barely will get into the text. Numbers. If you're in Exodus, the next book to your right is Leviticus. Remember, that's the one about learning how to be like a Levite. And then, that's the third tribe of Israel. And then, the book of Numbers. Do you remember why it's called Numbers? Why is it called Numbers? You tell me. Yeah, because they numbered the people. Nice. Okay, so Numbers chapter 13. Verse 1 of chapter 13. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, each one a leader from among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the commandment of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Interesting. Look at verse 8. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Did you notice that? Now, Hosea, by the way, I remind you, was the original name Joshua. Where, of course, we'll learn, gets the name change. 
As a matter of fact, look at verse 16, so you know I'm not making that up. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So there you go. So, he was a soldier, he was a servant, he stayed, and he was a... Spy. You got that, right? It's really kind of helping you out there. Alright, last three. You ready? Numbers 27. Some of you are like, this guy's bad. Verse 18 says this. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer, the priest, before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. He is, and we'll see this as well in the last book, and, we'll, and that's Deuteronomy, he is Spirit-filled. This is a guy who is Spirit-filled. So he's a soldier, he's a servant, he stays, he's a spy, he's spirit-filled. Numbers chapter 32, and now we're almost done with this. Numbers 32. And I could have read, you know, just the entire chapters of these, but you probably would appreciate I'm trying to do this for clarity. He says this, by the way. Remember those spies? Remember how I told you ten of them came back with a lousy report and only two came back well? That was Joshua and a guy named Caleb. Well, God reiterates that here in Numbers 32, verse 11. Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun. They have wholly followed me the Lord. The word I might use is the word set. He was set on doing God's will to the end. Or serious if you prefer. So he's a soldier, a servant, he stays, he's a spy, he's spirit-filled, he's serious or set. But here's the weirdest thing, the last of them. And that takes us to our chapter. And you know what he is besides all of that? Well, let's look at it in Deuteronomy because we'll see it there as well. We're in Numbers. You have one book to go. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. Joshua, chapter 1, verse 38. He's going to be Moses' replacement, by the way. In verse 38, it says this, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. God just said, Moses, you're not going to, but he will. Notice what it says next. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Go to chapter 3, verse 28. Deuteronomy 3, verse 28. Actually, go back one verse, 27, for context. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and east. Behold with your eyes that you shall not cross over the Jordan, but... Command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall, call, he shall go over before this people and shall cause them to inherit the land. You will see. One more. Chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 7. Moses is speaking to Joshua now. And he says, Moses called to Joshua and he said to him, In the sight of all Israel... Be strong and of good courage. You must go with this people to the land in which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Look at our chapter now. Now flip to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Now clearly Moses isn't speaking. Why isn't Moses speaking in Joshua 1? Because he's dead. Yeah, that would be kind of weird. But look at verse 6. This is God speaking to Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9. Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid nor be dismayed. And then the people at the last verse, verse 18, say at the end of it, only be strong and of good courage. 
And seven different times, Joshua's had to say, don't be afraid. The soldier who took on the first army, by the way, the first battle Israel fights out of Egypt, Amalek, leads the army into battle, completely victorious, but he's scared. The servant of Moses goes up on the hill and sees God come down like a smoking oven, writing with his finger on stone. He's scared. The one who could stand into the tabernacle and be captivated by God communicating with man. But he's scared. The one who's the spy, one of 12 guys that go into the enemy territory. Into the enemy territory. Do you know what happens if you get caught? He's a spy. He's scared. Spirit-filled. Numbers chapter 27, Deuteronomy 34. Call the man on whom the Holy Spirit is upon, empowered by God for the victory. But he's scared. One who God says will fully follow what I do. Fully follow what I say. But he's scared. And when we picture Joshua, we don't picture somebody that's like easily scared. Can I just say, even the biggest guys can look can get scared. And I'd like you to consider the fact that when Joshua's taking the people over, it's more than just fighting the people on the other side of the river. It's leading the people he has. I've seen some really big guys that had no problem getting in a fight with anyone in their life, but scared to death of having a wife and kids. Because punching a guy in the face is a lot easier than saying you're sorry to your wife. I watched people that were... There was a guy that we knew, and I'll I'll try not to make this long, but there was a guy who we knew that he was part of the Hell's Angels. He was a knuckle breaker. I mean, the guy was so big, he shot a disc out of the back of his neck because of his muscle. I mean, you couldn't wrap your hands around his neck. And there he was, Davey. He'd always talk like this. He'd say things like, as long as you're breathing, school's in session. I love Davey. But he was in a hospital bed and he couldn't get up because of his neck. He was in a halo. And I got to sit down next to him and watch that guy give his life to Jesus Christ. And he's like, I could break you like a twig. And I'm like, Holmes, you can't even get up right now. Don't even talk to me about this. I could smack you in the head. You be the one that's hurting. And I've watched guys that were big and scary, but sharing Jesus scared them like nothing else they've ever done. Strange, isn't it? You wouldn't have a problem picking a guy up and throwing him off a two-story building. You wouldn't have a problem throwing him out of a van or throwing him off a pier. But praying with him, praying out loud, now he's got indigestion. Sharing Jesus with someone, he's ready to pass out. Now, Davey, he didn't have a problem as much as some of the other guys we saw come to know the Lord. But can I just say, that God was aware of it and he, was, and he never fired him? Are you aware of that? That God looked at Joshua and he never said, you know, by now, you've clearly been walking with me for 40 years through the wilderness. You shouldn't be scared now. Don't we have enough history? I remind you, Joshua had been walking with the Lord longer than almost everyone in this room has been alive. Consider that. And he was still scared enough for God to say on three occasions in chapter 1, don't be afraid. Be of good courage, buddy. Sick, because I'm going to fulfill my promises with you. That's what he says in the first case. You're going to take this land. In other words, listen, can I just say this? And we're almost done here. I have a feeling, well, I'm just kind of reality setting it, that the introduction is about as far as we're going to get today. Which is good. That'll give you a chance to read that first chapter and be ready next week. But please hear my heart in this. God has three very simple things he says in regards to this. Remember the last time they say, be of good courage, it's the people that say it, his army. Actually, these two and a half tribes will explain that next week. God willing. In the first case, when God says this, he says, no, listen. I promise this. It's kind of come to pass. We can agree there is a battle to be fought in between where you are and the victory that I'm going to give you on this. 
to fulfill this promise, in between this point and its fulfillment, there's a battle to be fought. And it's a big one. But I've already won. Why are you fighting a battle that I've already won? You're supposed to be following me into the victory. So Joshua, don't be afraid. Please don't be afraid because I keep my promises. So maybe you're in a place where you're looking at yourself and you're like, oh man, I, I, I look at the struggles I have. Come on, I've been a Christian for like six weeks. I should be pretty close to perfect by now. Joshua's been walking with the Lord for 40 years in one way or in one manner or another, one capacity or another. And he, even in the midst of all of this, God's like, don't be afraid. You're going to divide this inheritance. That's in verse 6. Do you see it there? He's like, I, I, by the way, eight generations ago, I promised this. Nine, excuse me, nine generations ago, I promised this. I know how to make this happen. And if I say I began a good work in you and I'll, I'll actually be faithful to complete it, I meant it. And if I say that, look at no one is able to snatch you specifically out of my hand, I meant it. And when I said that I'm actually going to make you more into my image, slay the person you were and rise up a brand new person and you are now in me a new creation, God speaking, I meant it. Now, I don't know if you know that God. Maybe today... You're in that place where you're kind of aware of the fact that there's a God. Maybe you've even heard the name Jesus, but usually that kind of comes with some kind of weirdness somewhere, at least as far as you're concerned. And I'm here to let you know my God has already proven everything by dying on the cross for you because he'd rather die than live without you. And he paid the price for your sin and mine. He's paid your bill. The question is, why would you want to pay a bill God's already paid? Why in the world would you want to take the punishment somebody already else, someone else has already taken for you? But the only person qualified had to be perfect, and that's why Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's why Muhammad and Buddha and nor anyone else could actually pay the price, because they were all sinners. And by the way, it also had to be voluntary, and the only person who volunteered was Jesus. Praise God that the only one qualified was the one who volunteered. Aren't you thankful? But love, being a love, means there has to be a choice, and that means you have to make a choice in this. These things that God is saying, by the way, God would say to every one of us, but understand it starts with this. Will you accept the call? You could have chosen to stay in Egypt, and you could do that tonight. You could stay in your bondage. You can stay in the land of slavery. You can stay under the hand of the enemy. You can stay there, but by faith, God says, if you'll choose to, to follow me, let me be your Lord and Savior of your life. If you're willing to confess that and follow me, you will leave that place. And these promises are yours to grab a hold of. The promises I've given uniquely to you or I've given universally to those that are mine, they're yours to claim. But you've got to say yes to me. Just the same way that this last week, Deborah said yes to Hugo in front of everyone. We're not going to call you forward. The point is, are you willing to say yes to that offer? God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay your price. And he rose from the dead to give you new life. And now Jesus, risen from the dead, offers that new life and says, if you will, dropping the knee and says, will you have me? There are those that say, well, if God is so loving, why would he send anyone to hell? And can I say, God sends no one to hell. You send yourself. God put Jesus in the way. He died for you and rose again. You can say yes to that. But if you say no, don't blame God. He's given you a choice out. The same way that if a doctor said you have cancer, but I have this pill, you take it once and you'll be cured. And it was really true. If you died of cancer, you didn't take the pill. Don't blame the doctor. He gave you the option. And in the first case of these three, and this is kind of what we'll bring this around to close, God says, listen, I'm going to fulfill my promises, so, so don't be afraid. Matter of fact, the words he uses in verse 6 are be strong and of good courage. Two words, by the way, the first word is chatak. Chatak, by the way, means to grow strout, rigid, or hard. If you will, go hard. The second word for good courage, by the way, is the word amatz. And the word amatz, by the way, means to be courageous or solid. In other words, God's looking at this, if you will, it's like in the locker room, for those of you who have made claim to Christ, and God says, listen, go hard and go solid. That's what he's saying. At least that's how I get it. And verse 7 is the second of those three times. Notice that with me. And he says, be strong and very courageous that you would observe to do all of the law. The first case, he says, look, be of courage because I fulfill my word. And the second case, he says, now, be strong. And notice, very courageous. He adds the word very, by the way. It's mi'ud. It means even more today. 
And the idea is, I want to prosper you. And they'll say it twice, by the way. In verse 7, that you may prosper. And in verse 8, that you will make your way prosperous. And by the way, we'll talk more about that next week. But the idea is, God's like, look it. Don't be afraid of following me. I need you to be courageous because the things I'm going to challenge you to do are going to seem crazy because they're in the world of the miraculous. And a miraculous thing can't make sense or it isn't miraculous anymore. Finally, in the last of them, by the way, notice in verse 9, and this is, of course, the one that seals the deal. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. And he adds two more words. And hear these, the word afraid and dismayed. Do you see that in verse 9? That was a question, by the way. You can nod or shake your head or just just bark or something. Just, you know, I just want to make sure you're still there. The word for afraid, by the way, is the word edits. And the word edits, by the way, means to tremble, to break, to dread. And the word for dismayed is the word chetat. Chetat, by the way, means to be shattered. And God says, look it, I know what happens. And I kind of, kind of see this. Notice it kind of grows. It starts with the idea that you start to tremble. You're afraid. So solid up. Strengthen up a bit. Solid up because I, I know what it's like to be afraid. You're afraid of when a person might, the way they may look at you, a total stranger you may never see again on the bus. But if you actually even talk about Jesus or even pull out your Bible, you're afraid someone might go, hmm. You'll never see them again, perhaps. Man, if you've got a Bible, take that baby out. Old faithful, and get it on a train, get it on a bus. I'm so tired of us looking like the outcast. People go, wow, is that Bible? What? Do they still have those here? Oh, yes. Strangely enough, I actually read it. But doesn't it say? No, actually, it doesn't say that at all. Doesn't it say cleanliness is next to godliness? You know, funny, you wouldn't criticize it if you read it. Oh, you're a Mac. No wonder why you read the Bible. Oh, you did you just insult me? I'm sorry, I'm too stupid to think. No, you know, the point is, that's fearing someone. That's, that's being afraid. In the winter, you know, when you're on that beautiful double-decker bus and the windows fog up, and I'm sitting on that front row and I'm looking up and I'm like, I have a billboard in front of me. A giant window, fogged up. So I go and write with my finger, Jesus died for your sins and rose to give you new life. Say yes to him. Right. Oh, that's, that's, is that insane? Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes. And I kid you not, a girl that was maybe 14 is walking down the stairs because she has to walk right by and she goes, oh, how retarded. I was retarded for writing that on the window? Is that the craziest thing? And you know what? I, you just, there's a part of my head that thinks, there's a girl, she's, she's going to stand before God one day and, God's, and she's like, I'm basically a good person. And God's going, let's roll film. Let's just take a look at this moment on the bus. Do you remember this moment? I was there. Remember that? I just think how crazy. And the funny thing is, and at those moments, you know, they go, do you really believe? And you're like, yes, actually, well, absolutely I do. It is amazing who else is listening that really just wants someone to believe. The only people, let's be honest, the only people who really seem to believe their religion are Muslims. Let's be honest. They're the only ones that seem to be unbending. I wonder why people are running to them. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be honest. And this is what God says. Listen, it's not time... To, to cower, to shake, to tremble, or to shatter to the point where you're like, oh, get it, forget it, I'll just be a pagan. You know what? I'm so tired of it. I just want to be real. It's amazing how simple it is when you're real. And this is what God says. Notice what it says in that verse. Because I am with you wherever you go. It doesn't matter where you're going to go. I'm going to be there. You're never going to be alone. You're like, but if I do that, I'll be all alone. That person will bail on me. God's like, how could you ever be alone? I'm with you wherever you go. Really? Yeah. But what if I never get asked out? God's like, but you're my bride. Yeah, but I can't see you. God's like, you'd see me more if you kept your eyes on me. 
All right, Lord. Well, listen, in light of the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks, it's become very evident that, and, and I started looking at, at some of these things where I look at these people who sort of started these movements, you know, these guys like Martin Luther, who had his own issues, mind you, but nothing compared to what's happening in some of his fellowships today, or the Wesleys and what's happening in some of theirs and all that. I realized it's like there needs to be some form of constitution that's unchanging in light of all of the things that are happening, in light of how everything seems to be a sliding scale. So I'm going to read something, and perhaps it'll be extremely offensive. But I don't want to be changing on the things. And I just want to openly declare. So, so as I'm reading all of this, the Lord just brought me, and I'm just kind of writing this thing out. And this is for my own personal use to start with. But listen to this, if you will. Um, and we'll close with prayer. Hopefully this won't... Well, here we go. Ready? This is so that... Let's say I get... On my way out of here, I got run over by a herd of yak. And this fellowship's to carry on. I don't plan it. I haven't seen any yak, but just in case. I just wanted to be clear and evident on this. Listen to this. And I hope this resounds with your heart. We pledge allegiance to the Lord, Jesus Christ. The only way, truth, and the life, and the only name by which man may be saved. We openly declare his literal coming to earth as a man, sinless life, death for the sins of every person, and resurrection. All literal and completely fulfilled as prophesied in Scripture. We openly declare the gift of Christ's payment on the cross and new life of his resurrection offered to every man who may choose to receive it by believing or deny it to his own peril. We openly declare his literal ascension and imminent return to earth. We pledge allegiance to the Bible. The Holy Scriptures is completely true and relevant, active and living, still God-breathed and essential for correction, rebuke, equipping, and training in righteousness. The Old Testament, we, we openly declare the Old Testament is completely accurate and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament law. We openly declare the Old Testament historical passages as completely accurate and relevant, real human beings whose stories still challenge and warn us today. We openly declare the Old Testament poetic prophetic passages as completely accurate and prophecies pointing us to Jesus' literal first and second coming. We openly declare the New Testament Gospels as completely accurate, cohesive and in total agreement, declaring Jesus as the Son of God, God the Son, perfect, sinless, and exclusively the sacrifice for every human being's sins. We openly declare the New Testament's recording of Jesus' miracles, teachings, and all other points as completely accurate and essential as all other scripture for mature Christian living. We openly declare the New Testament epistles as completely accurate, unwavering standards that are not to be bent to not offend contemporary culture. As offensive as they were in their cultures in which they were written, they remain deep-rooted foundations of truth for proper Christian behavior. We openly declare the book of Revelation as completely accurate and a stark warning of what will come of a world that abandons its God. We acknowledge we do not expect those who do not or have not confessed Jesus as Lord to submit to Jesus' conditions. Just as much as we wouldn't expect a person not connected to or living in a country to have submit to theirs. But we do expect so for the household of God under Jesus Christ. If he's to be confessed as Lord, he must have the right to act as Lord. In light of that, we acknowledge these simple and clear tenets that Jesus clearly receives any human being who will call on him as Lord by faith, regardless of race, gender, social strata, sexuality, or any other identifiable trait. He demands, however, that we receive him as Lord, not simply as Savior. He assumes the right of reinventing every one of us into his new creation. And any demand we place requiring him to leave any area of our life or identity untouched refuses his lordship. Therefore, any claim, regardless, be it hetero or homosexual, sexual practices, or any other thing that does not agree with the clear scriptural standard, if, we are, if such a person denies God's standard of lordship, well, they deny his lordship. And that's an affront to his death and resurrection on his behalf. Simply, it denies the cross's payment for all their sins and the resurrection for the new life he demands. So we will not then ordain, employ, promote, or marry any person who is contrary to this. Not in struggle, but in declaration of its truth. 
He has a right to establish his rules for his invented institutions. As a ministry under Jesus Christ's lordship, we won't promote, endorse, or perform anything then that is openly contrary to Scripture. We pledge allegiance to the gospel. Jesus' literal death on the cross for men's sins, as Scripture foretold, his literal burial, his literal resurrection from the dead on the third day, as the Scripture foretold, its declaration to man for the saving of any who would believe, its foundation as a necessary to be present at every corporate function and assembly. We hold these tenets as non-negotiable, unchanging and immutable points of our faith, tried true and without change. This is not a declaration of our own personal sinlessness, nor a declaration of any superiority, for all men are alike under sin. But rather, we openly confess our submission to God's authority, His Lordship under His holy scriptures, and that in the public church, as well as in our own private lives as well. It is under this constituency we are commanded to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and in sincere and genuine care, invite any and all to the offer of this new life. This is our declaration of allegiance, the constitution of our Christianity. I just want to make clear to you, I do believe this book. I believe every word word of it, every page of it. And I believe that the God in this book loves humankind and wants every person to hand himself over to him. I believe that the Lord is Lord. And please hear this as we close this. When we stand before God in heaven and we look at Jesus, two things stand out. One, that he is Lord. And second, that he is holy. Please hear me. What will become clear and evident by the time this book or this world winds down is that the church will continue to move farther and farther away from those two things. I'm not talking about a person who looks and says, you know, I'm struggling with this. We don't struggle with something we don't think is wrong. We struggle with that. We openly declare is wrong. The point is this. The Lord wants every one of us to hand our life to him so that he can reinvent it. So it really doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what identity you claim to. What it was you were before that point. If you're willing to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, he's willing to make you brand new. And he's willing then to take the clay of your life and shape it into something so much more infinitely beautiful than anything you can imagine. So I don't care what it is. Any form of personal identity, any form of ability, any form of affinity. We're not black Christians, white Christians, old Christians, young Christians. We are Christians, and that means we are to be Christ-like. We are to follow Jesus. And I'm just here to let you know, the battle's mine too. There are parts of who I was that you want to drag over the cross, but they don't belong. And what's going to become clear next week is that the way that this starts to take the land is that the old dies. Because when the old dies, God has something in its place. You can never have your hands full of something for God to give you if they're already full of something else. It's like if you're going out with Mr. Wrong, why would Mr. Right ask you out? You're clearly already with something. And I just want to say, as we go to prayer, my God is in love with you. So I would say, come as you are, but leave as He is. Don't leave as you are. Why would you want to do that? Hand your life over to Jesus. And let's walk into this thing and watch God change this world around us, change this city. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, it's got to start by changing the world in us before it goes anywhere else, right? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for what you've done in this time. I thank you for the way you've prepared us for this book. For the battles that will be fought. All of them by the victorious following you. For the way, Lord, that you are going to challenge us to bring us to the place of the miraculous. But we recognize, God, that if it was just us, we would be people who would just sort of die in the wilderness or worse yet, die in Egypt. We'd die in our own slavery. But that's not what you intended. 
So tonight, right here in this room, I pray that you would do something radical. I pray for every one of us, Lord. And I'm not just talking about those who aren't really sure whether they have said yes or they're sure that they haven't. But I pray for those that have made claim to you. But somehow in it, we're so happy to declare you as Savior, but we're not interested in letting you be Lord. But clearly in Scripture, you've never said, whoever confesses me as Savior will be saved. But confessing you as Lord is demanding. And in a world where we're so full of entitlement, we feel like everything is our right, that we somehow are the Lord of our own life, I recognize that's a huge battle. And yet, Lord, you've made so clear your love, you've made perfect your proof by dying for us when we hated you, for suffering such a horrendous death when we so desperately wanted to live our own life without you. And then raising from the dead to give us a brand new life and calling us by name and bringing us into this room today. It's evident you want us. And I just pray that we would really genuinely lay our lives down and say, be our Lord. Not just save us, but lead us. Not just to be free, but to be following. And Lord, that we would really declare you as holy, that we wouldn't just try to make you like other people. But you are God the Son and the Son of God, Jesus. And I just pray that you would transform the world around us. So, Lord, for those who have made claim to you, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from crumbling, shattering, cowering, shriveling because of what others might think. Remind us, you fulfill your promises. Your word is true. You'll never leave us, nor forsake us. And in this room, as we close this, if there be any within the sound of this voice, who knows tonight they need to say yes, that they want to walk out of here having said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ at the cross and yes to His offer of making them new. New creations. Masterpieces, as He calls us. Poema. I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen. At the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my words now. Let that prayer be mine. So be it. And here it is. God in heaven, like any other human being on the planet, I'm a sinner. I'm faulty. And before you, guilty on my own accord. But you so love me that you paid the price for my guilt by sending your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me. And as he died on that cross, my price was paid. And as he rose again from the grave, he offers me new life. But then he also gives me a choice for me to say yes to. And I just want you to know tonight, I say yes. I say yes to that offer. Please pay my bill. Wash me clean. Give me that new life. So I recognize if you want to give me new life, I have to hand you my old one. So I give it to you now. I say reinvent me. Make me beautiful and alive and free in you to follow you to the greatest victories. I'm yours now. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer tonight, I ask you to give a confident resounding. Amen.